everybody, and welcome to our weekly Wealth Builders podcast. We are so appreciative of you joining us each and every week. And I'm Karen Conrad, Vice President of Wealth Builders, and I have two amazing guests with me today, two of our real estate coaches. So say hi, guys. I've got Frank Pulley. Hey, everybody. And hey. Mike Davis. Glad to be here, Karen. Thank you so much. I'll tell you, we had a really fun webinar, free webinar last week, and the topic was on fix and flips. And we got so many questions that we decided to dedicate this podcast to answering a lot of the questions that we weren't able to get to on the webinar. And so just real quickly too, I wanna let everybody know that if they want access to that webinar, they can go to Billy Epperhart's YouTube channel, which is the Wealth Builders YouTube channel, and you can listen to it in its entirety. And I believe that this is really going to help you. There's a lot of interest in fix and flips. There's something about it that's really fun, but it's also one of the larger risks that we can take on in real estate. So we want to make sure that we know what we are doing. Uh, so before we dig into the fix and flip questions, you know, there's a lot of noise in the market right now about interest rates. I would love just to get a... Uh, you know, a comment or two from each of you to share with us what you think is happening right now in the real estate market and what you think the rest of this year is going to look like. So Frank, I'm going to start with you. Well, I mean, interest rates are impacting a lot. Um, I mean, it knocks people out of the market. Every little quarter point that goes, that goes up, it knocks a few people out. Uh, but there's still a lot of demand. I mean, that has not really relinquished. I looked at some stuff over in Highlands Ranch. Mm -hmm. There's like one property in all of Highlands Ranch that's being listed right now. That's just absolutely crazy. And then on top of that, I'll let Mike speak to what this is doing for rents. Well, rents are going through the roof. And uh, I mean, they, they literally are climbing like every other month. You, they, they go up, but it's the same way here in Pueblo. Uh, there is such a, a shortage of homes. And so the market, I believe, is going to stay uh, pretty high. But guys, I did read an article by, uh, it was a major banking institution, and they do believe that there's going to be more foreclosures coming toward the middle of this year and towards the end of this year. They believe, because, you know, the banks, they really tried to help out yeah. Uh, everyone by keep saying, I mean, I've heard of even one bank, Karen, that said not only will they not have any payments for 12 months, but when the 12 months came, they worked with a guy and they added another three months on. But, you know, banks can't keep doing that. No. Eventually, they're going to need your mortgage payment. So <laughs> I think from 2020 and 2021, banks really, really worked and went the extra mile with people. But I think in 2022, uh, they're going to start closing in on that and saying, okay, we're going to have to have some payments and people aren't being able to pay. And so this guy said that uh, we'll probably will see more foreclosures, but it's not going to hurt the market. It's just going to be more investment opportunities for people to buy foreclosures. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's really great. 
information and with the interest rates going up, I think it is knocking out some of the investors. I personally think that it's a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction that's happened. I, I believe it's going to settle back down, uh, you know, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? It's been a pretty uh, turbulent year so far in many ways. But I think also what we have to remember, many of us, I was in banking actually at the time in the 2008 to maybe 2012, and the difference with what's happening today is that there is no supply. And yeah. uh, back in that time, there was supply. And so I think that's a pretty big variable. But also this ties in really well with our discussion on fix and flips, because if there is a softening in the market that might be coming or values uh, might be going down because of some of the things we're talking about, it's really important that people know what they're doing going into a fix and flip so that they don't get themselves in a position where they're expecting or, you know, having to count on the market continuing to increase at such a rapid pace. And then maybe it takes them six months or, you know, whatever to get that flip done and we could have a different market. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what's amazing too is, if the banks do let some of this stuff go, there's such a lack of uh, inventory right now. I don't know. It might soften things a little bit, but I don't think you're going to see uh, prices plummet. And I just heard from a good authority that lenders are not lenders, but contractors all over the country thought they would be caught up with new builds by 2020. And they're, they all figure they're at least five years out right now with the demand. It is. It's still a high demand. Wow. Okay. That's really great information going into this discussion. That actually gives us a lot of confidence in, you know, yeah. that, that this is an opportunity that potentially people have. So we answered a lot of questions that night. We just frankly ran out of time <laughs> because we had so many questions. So I'm going to go down the list here and we're just going to have a great discussion on this. And there's a lot of interest on this first topic. This question is from Dennis Lorenz, thank you, Dennis, for asking this. And it has to do with qualifying as a real estate professional. And there's a lot of interest in uh, our coaching clients and the people that attend the workshops on this. And basically it's because it gives us some additional tax write-offs. And so Frank, maybe you could just take a moment to explain what a real estate professional designation actually is and why people might want it. Well, I mean, it, it really, amongst other things, allows you to take, um, what should I say, deductions above a $25,000 limit. So if you have five or six properties and you have something catastrophic happen, or even if you own 40 properties, I mean, you're able to go way beyond that limit. If you've got one, two, or three, it's going to be something pretty bad to have, have a $25,000 loss. So it's... And in addition to other qualifying uh, items, um, it, uh, it is an advantage, but for uh, it, it's something to work towards as you build your portfolio. Thank you. And based on that too, does the $25,000 loss include depreciation? No, it does not. So you're, you get depreciation no matter what. Good to know. All right, great. All right, so here's a question from Dennis, and it's got a couple parts to it. 
He says, my wife and I own a single family rental that after 20 years became vacant in June of 2021. I was always a passive investor as a full-time W-2 employee, but I worked only one month in 2021. He said, I believe we can qualify as a real estate professional to use losses to offset his ordinary income since we work primarily on our rental significantly over the six months to perform extensive maintenance and repairs, including starting a kitchen renovation in the fourth quarter. So do you agree? Do you think that they're in a position where they could potentially uh, qualify for the real estate professional designation? Well, I think that's a question they have to ask their accountant. And the reason is because, first of all, it's difficult to do with just one property. And also their, their accountant's gonna uh, ask them to somehow prove that they've got via a log or something like that, that they've got each the necessary time uh, to put that in. I mean, I guess it's possible, but I don't know that, um, that it's probable. Yes, and by the way, yes, time driving to and from a property normally would count. And don't forget okay. mileage. That, that's not a loss, but that's another deduction. Okay, that's a that's a second part of the question on do the hours driving from California to Maryland, which is five to six days, count towards material participation? And assuming it does, would it be eight hours or 24 hours a day? Well, no, I think, and again, you're going to ask after you ask your accountant, but I believe the expenses in getting to where they are and they're staying and working on the property would be just an expense. Right. Okay. You know, driving, flying, whatever. Once they get there and they've got a, a residence or a place they're staying at driving from there to the property location and back, that would be, in my opinion, what, a, what an accountant would call, you know, driving to and from work. Right. It's a okay. whole different thing. First, they're getting to the, the property itself. You know, it's like if I had a property in Arizona, if I fly down there, well, that's definitely an expense if I'm spending all my time, but, but it's not really a, it's not really a loss. It's an expense and uh, versus, uh, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, going to the property, the time back and forth would be counted. And I, I guess possibly the hours driving there or flying there could be, but man, I would ask my accountant on that because everybody's a little bit different. Okay, great. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? And then the second part of this question is, would we count both husband and wife hours performing work on the house to qualify? That's probably a good, like, I don't want to do the lawyer answer, but it depends. But yeah. uh, because of your filing jointly, uh, for your taxes, um, I'm not for sure how the accountant could separate to say my wife worked this many hours, I worked this many hours. I think it would a lot would depend on how you're filing. But uh, what is it, uh, Frank? 720 hours is that what it is, or 750? Around 700. 700. It's over 700. I'm pretty sure. Um, so that's a lot of hours. But I think you just would have to be careful. But and what I do know, which I'm not an expert, but I. I think you want to be very cautious about sending up any red flags to the IRS. And I think like Frank, only owning one home 
Um, I think that could send up a red flag, even if you said, yeah, well, I stretched it really to the max. I think an IRS agent's going to see one home and go, wait a minute, that, that seems almost impossible to do. And the other thing too is, what are they going to do about the next year? How are they right. going to put another 700 hours each in the next year? Yeah. And the following year after that and after that. You have to have quite a few homes. I mean, you, either you're doing a lot of fi fix and flips or uh, at least a minimum of five houses. But if you're doing a lot of fix and flips, you don't have to have as many. But I would think you would have to have at least five houses and do some fix and flips in there to, to qualify for over 700 hours. Yeah, I, I okay. totally agree. That's really helpful. What about someone that is also a real estate agent? How does that fit into the mix of qualifying for a real estate professional? Well, and from what I know, I believe that actually, I mean, those hours count. You're in real estate. Mm -hmm. You're working in real estate. That's kind of like a person that's actually going and uh, spending all of their time doing fix and flips and they're doing all the work. But again, You'd probably need more than one property to do that. But yeah, from what I understand, being a realtor, um, and you can be there a lot of hours, uh, counts towards that designation because you're in real estate. That's great. And I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I do want to let everybody know that we've got a real estate workshop coming up April 22nd to the 24th. And we've got a live stream option available for you right now. The in-person is sold out. But it is an intensive weekend of real estate training. And Billy talks about the real estate designation, um, along with a lot of other things. He'll be doing a lot of the teaching during that weekend. So if you're interested in that, I'll tell you what, I really encourage you. If you've got interest in real estate, you need to come to this event. It's so so helpful and we give you three weeks after the event to actually watch the live stream because it's so much information there's you know really no way that you can just grab hold of everything that weekend and retain it but if you're interested in that go to wealthbuilders.org slash events and uh, get registered and i think it it will really help you it's very valuable and these two guys are going to be there as well <laughs> yes we will all right, this next question is from Theo Oriaber. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And he's, he asked this, he says, I have several parcels of land. How can I use them as collateral to secure a loan for a commercial property? And so Mike, I'm gonna start with you on that one. Well, I think you have to find the right uh, lending institution, the right bank. And so if you go to one bank, they may say, no, we can't do that. So we've learned, especially me, I've learned that I've gone to many banks and knocked on many doors. And so if you go to the right banker and they find out the value of all of those properties, they could use that to uh, use as collateral for a commercial property. I think you're just going to have to find the right bank, but uh, I think it's very possible to do that, Karen. Great. Frank, anything to add on that? Well, yeah, some lenders will do that. And not all of the conventional ones do, but some of the private lenders do that. And they call that process cross-collateralization. And it's yes. quite common. And you should go to the mom and pop banks. We didn't mention yeah. that, but you know, uh, you're going to have better luck instead of going to the big box banks stores. So, 
That's so true. And uh, Billy always recommends like go visit banks. You guys both have a lot of experience with that, but you need to have a relationship with the lender. Uh, you know, someone at the bank that's actually in those loan committees that can advocate for you can give you some advice on how to structure a loan because, you know, as somebody that's looking to get a loan, we have an idea, but really that banker is the one that looks at everything that you have and makes a recommendation, how to best structure the loan for the purpose that you're seeking. So uh, get that relationship. We just did that actually this last week. We met with somebody that uh, is a board of director and an owner in a local bank. He set us up with the president. We're going to go have a visit. And I think especially now in this political environment, we're big advocates for small banks. And also just when people know you and you can sit down and talk to them, it says a lot because one of the four C's or five C's or I've heard it taught three C's is character. And, and so having that relationship is something that the bank is able to, a person is able to really see the type of character that you have and it, it can work definitely to your advantage as a borrower. All right, this question is from Charlotte Yarbrough and she says, how do you find good and reasonable contractors? One thing we found is that a contractor was charging an additional 15% fee for using subcontractors, really increased price. And so Mike, I'm gonna start with you on this one. Well, first of all, I think you have to do your homework. When you find uh, a contractor, the way that the best way to find it is to ask other investors to see who they use. And uh, then even after that, I find out, uh, a project they did that you can look at like a deck or something outside and look at the quality of it. But, uh, and if you're using a contractor, I mean, you would need to have everything written down. If this guy's, you know, wanting to charge 15% fee, I want to see that in writing and you need to ask them that. Yeah, that's really good. Frank. Well, I think again, if you, if you're a member of a local real estate investing organization or bank that you know well, a real estate agent, those are good ways of finding those guys. Um, and uh, uh, again, like I said before, I, I found them before by just driving areas and seeing, uh, you know, work in progress and went in and just talked to them. So mm -hmm. as far as the extra 15%, believe me, that's actually, uh, believe me, they earn that 15%. They schedule those subcontractors. They, you know, I mean, they do all the work, they get them paid, they get lien releases, it's worth it. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think uh, if you've just got little things that you want yeah. done, you can have, you know, have the person come in and do the work. But if you've got any size project or if you're new in an area, to me, it's really important you've got someone overseeing things like that. And it's generally between 10 and 20% for a general contractor. And I think your points are both so well, and you do need to do the research, get reviews, get, you know, referrals from people, check out their work. And one of the things uh, you guys always say is do not pay them up front, no. right? Yeah. All right, great. This is from Susan Brunk, and uh, she was watching on Facebook. Hey, Susan, thanks for your question. 
She says they are having bidding wars in my area on homes, giving 20 to 30 more than what the seller is even asking. It seems you would be upside down when the market shifts. I know it's not what this webinar is about, she said, but my heart is set on an RV park. So starting her own, but she doesn't know the best way to start with money that her and her husband have. So this is kind of like a two-part question. Let's answer the first question. What do you guys think about people paying so much over the asking price, Frank? Well, I think depends on the market, uh, the place, but honestly, uh, 20 to 30 more um, for an investment probably not might not make sense, but for a personal home, the market is appreciating so darn fast. Probably six months or a year from now, that's going to be under the value of the property. So you just have to watch it. But I think that uh, if you don't go too crazy and still make a, a good bid a little over the uh, the asking price, I, I think you're going to be okay in most areas. Um, but once again, that doesn't really apply to investment properties. That's a whole different thing. All right, great. Mike? Well, I think the, the bottom line is the formulas and the numbers that we teach people, no matter what they're asking, uh, this is our safety net. This is our borders that if the numbers work, then it doesn't matter if it's $20,000 over. If your numbers work at 20,000, go, go for it. But that's what we, uh, is our protection, Karen, is the formulas and the numbers. And then we're not so concerned about how much this is or how much that is. Does it fit in your formulas? Then you're safe. Yeah, that's really good. I, I really appreciate how we have put together, Billy and Becky have set the standard for the criteria and that protection is the cash flow. And then rental rates go up in a market oftentimes if values go down. So it's just such a great hedge. And again, you're gonna learn all more about this at the real estate workshop. So a lot of great details like this, thank you. Uh, let's just touch on the second half of Susan's question. She is wondering about uh, buying an RV park. She really has her heart set on that. So how could someone start with even looking into a purchase for an R RV park, Frank? Well, I mean, they are for sale. You I don't think you want to build one. I mean, seriously, right now, even for a small one, you're talking millions of dollars because you've got to have electrical, sewer, and Lord knows what else there to, to get that thing going. Um, but buying the existing one uh, is not uncommon. You can make really good money on those. Um, they, they do take a little maintenance, um, but I would just, I would Google those and just find out RV parks for sale because at any given moment in time, there are RV parks that are uh, available for sale. Great. Mike? Well, I've read, you know, in 20, I'm a camper. So I and go to, our, well, so is Frank. We go to RV parks and camp and things like that. And so in 2020 and 2021, Frank, you probably found this out. You talk about tight. I mean, before that, you wouldn't have to make a reservation except for a couple of days or a week before. In 2020 and 2021, if you didn't make a reservation three or four, five, six months out, uh, you're not going to be camping. And so I read, I, I heard of a one in Southern Colorado that was like three, he bought it for like 3 million or whatever. And during that time, 2021, he doubled his money. He had it for like seven or eight years and he made $3 million off of it. So um, 
there is just like everything else. I think the world and investors have found out that, you know what? RV parks are very valuable. And so, boom, just like houses, they really escalated in value. But uh, I think you have to do your homework and just like the same way with the investing in houses is that does it cash flow? That's the bottom line. If it cash flows, then you need to look into it. Wow, that's very helpful. Great. Also, I think you had mentioned, I can't remember which one of you had said this, but you also have to pay attention to any um, legislature choices like Colorado made a change with RV parks. And so people were yes. selling them, right? But there right. was a reason. Yes, there was. Yes. So There's a lot of expenses people don't realize that go into it. Everybody thinks that, wow, I mean, I just checked you know, the campers out, sell a little food in the store and that's it. But you got to keep the sewage system going. If you're in an area where it's not county or uh, city sewer, you got to figure out, you know, some sort of a big leach field or whatever. I guess trees are also a major expense in an RV park. If you want a really good looking one, you have a lot of trees in there, but they can, you know, trees grow and they need to be trimmed. And if you got a hundred trees, that is a major expense. Great. Thank you. This next question is from Heather Greenman, and this is just so sweet. I just want to note, just put in here that she knew me in Bible college and at the ministry, and my son Levi went on a Nicaragua mission trip with her, and so she said she loves what we're doing. So Heather, thank you for that. I'll let Levi know that you were on, and he, he would love to be able to say hi, and uh, it's just really nice of you to comment on that. So Heather's just saying that in 18 months, their property value will be up to like $283,000. And it's much more than what they purchased it for. So in general, they live in Northern Idaho and their house value has gone up an average of $9,000 a month. So with the market going up exponentially the past two years, this being their first house, they really want to use a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit or cash out refinance to buy land. However, would you suggest using that money for two more regular properties? And then in addition to that, do you think the market will still be going up two years from now? And how about four years from now? So Frank, I'll send that to you first. Well, I, I mean, I, it depends on what they're buying, but I, I think if you can do a cash out refi in order to make down payments and get two properties up and running, that is the ultimate leverage. And that's what's so magic about real estate. You can control those properties with just a little bit of money down. So personally, I think, I think uh, houses would be a good purchase for you know, with that uh, cash out refi, that's, uh, I mean, that's, they have a considerable amount of money available and I, they wouldn't want to put all of that into one, one property. I don't. Great. Mike. I agree. And as far as, you know, to say, what's your opinion in four years, what the, the real estate market's going to be, to be honest with you, uh, my opinion, or to be honest with you, anybody else's opinion, uh, it's just going to be a guest, you know, because of the economy, if war breaks out, you know, there's so many variables to that. So to, to get somebody built up to say and be confident that, hey, you know what, four years, it's going to be this. Well, really, nobody knows. But we do know this. 
in the last 75 years, the housing real estate market has appreciated five to 6% per year. We can go on that. We can bank that. Yeah. So, uh, and rents have continually gone up for the 75 years. We can go on that. We can bank that. So I like doing those kind of statistics instead of saying, this is what the future looks like. I'm just saying for the last 75 years, this is what we can count on. So that's my opinion. <laughs> that's really good, Mike and Frank, because, uh, you know, with fixed interest rates, we've been around a while. I was talking to my dad, who's 90 years old, and we were having this discussion today. He was a CEO at a bank pretty much all, all my life. And uh, he was just saying that people don't realize how great the interest rate environment is right now. And so if you can fix that rate in for 30 years, even if values go up and down and you build in the cash flow, you can weather the little blips in the market. And one of the graphs that you're talking about, Mike, is so interesting because you can see something that seems so major, like, you know, the 2008 to 2012. And if you look at it, it's just this little blip down, (laughs) back up, and then it keeps climbing. And so I think that's really wise and also why it's really important to know what you're doing. Because like Billy says, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. And so when you've got all these analytics, these ratios that that we help you pull together, you kind of create that mitigated um, space for risk. And um, that's where the wisdom comes in and the knowledge. So that's very exciting. Wow, Heather, that's a big increase on your home. Uh, And so what a blessing. And it's really good to hear that you're looking at investing some of that into something that's going to help you build the future for wealth for your family. This is a question from Natasha. Uh, She's got two questions. The first one is, when is the real estate coaching program open again for new registrants? And so you can actually reach out to us anytime. And what we do is we schedule uh, with all of us coaches. We do uh, just a free Zoom call with you to kind of answer some questions and uh, help give you an idea if the coaching program would be helpful or not. And so if you are interested in that, you can reach out to our office, uh, just email info at wealthbuilders.org. And she also asked, how do you compare the benefits of fix and flip with wholesaling for someone just starting out? Do you recommend one over another for beginners typically? That's a great question. Frank, can you start us out on that? Well, I guess it depends on how much, how much money you have. I mean, honestly, you're going to make the big bucks with a fix and flip. I mean, you, you should, at least if you do it right with wholesaling, uh, my buddy, Bill Bronchick says you're earning chunks of chunks of cash. So, you know, you're making three, five, seven thousand dollars for every wholesale that you do. The nice part about wholesaling though, is it's pretty low risk. Normally if you put somebody under contract and wholesale it to another investor, if you don't fulfill your contract, you lose your earnest money, which is typically around a thousand dollars or so. If you really screw up on a fix and flip, the rewards are bigger, but so is the risk. But once again, with good education and good backing, and, and I'm just going to put a plug in there, good mentoring, um, you can do fix and flips and make some really good money. That's great, Mike. 
I think that's the key. Uh, fix and flips, you do have to have some knowledge because I know a guy here in, in Pueblo, he's been doing uh, real estate for even a couple of years and he did uh, a fix and flip and he literally called me and wanted consoling because he, he <laughs> said, Mike, I lost so much money. And I said, well, what'd you do? And he fixed it up too nice. And uh, he really overfixed it. And then uh, when he sold it, he didn't get his money back. And that's somebody who's been doing it for a couple of years. So you do have to have knowledge and realize uh, what you, when you're going into a project, what you're going to be spending, what you should be spending on. You know, he knew that kind of stuff. But when it was all said and done, the house didn't sell for what he thought it would sell for. If you don't have a lot of money. You know, a lot of people will do wholesaling where they do wholesaling for a few months and add that money to their uh, bank account so that they can do other things like fix and flips, buy and holds and that sort of thing. So if you have a lot of money, fix and flips are great. But if you don't, you're just starting out, you're a beginner. Wholesaling is a great strategy. That's great. Thank you so much. And we kind of answered this, but I'm going to just say the question again. This is from Eric Backland, and he says, as a licensed real estate broker, are there advantages to the process of getting a real estate designation? Do you want to comment on that, Frank? Well, I think if they're a real estate investor, yes. If they're not investing, I don't know what good it would do them. I mean, certainly they could you know, get themselves uh, designated at that. But unless you're investing, I don't think it's something you really need. Yeah, that's really great. Wow, these are such good questions. And I think that, you know, when we were, would look at all of this and just maybe kind of give a recap based on the conversation today, something that comes to mind, I'll start with this and then ask you guys, it just to me is, the opportunities are there, but you got to know what you're doing. So surround yourself with people like a real estate agent that is really good, not someone that just wants to sell you a house, but an agent that is also an investor that says, you know what, this, this might look good, but you know, when on the, after three months, you're not going to earn money on this. You know, we need those people around us that tell us the truth and don't try to just sell us something. Um, and that's something that we do in coaching too. I mean, sometimes it's hard coaching clients maybe want a property so much, but we have to let them know like, you know what, you might like this property, but the numbers just aren't working. Um, Frank, what would you just in recap, what would you like to tell people today? Well, as you said, Karen, there's a lot of opportunities, honestly, Believe it or not, you can make, if you know what you're doing, you can make money in a down market or an up market. People have done that all throughout history, and, and especially the last 30 years. People have made, well, actually 40 or 50 years. In the 70s and 80s, there were 15% interest rates on, on homes, believe it or not. And people still made money in those kinds of arenas. Awesome. Mike? I agree. You know, uh, people tend to think, you know, like, oh, wow, interest rates may go up to 5%. My mom's house when I was a kid was 7.5% interest. And when I first bought my house uh, in the 80s, like Frank was talking about, I said, oh, 7.5%. I was like, I think it was between 15 and 16%, Frank, interest yeah. rate. And I think, 
you know, I was just a young whippersnapper, but I thought, man, interest rates will never be that low again, you know, and here, here we are. I, I did a loan for 2.75 and you think, dear Lord, that's cheap money. But uh, yeah. I, I think, you know, they creep up to 5% and you hear people talking like, oh my goodness. And I'm thinking, really? 5% is still cheap money for a loan for 30 years. It really is. So cost of doing business. Yes, it is. The cost of doing business. That's a great line, Frank. That's really good, guys. And just a reminder, if you want to watch the full webinar that we are referencing or asking or answering questions about, you can go to Billy Epperhart's YouTube channel and uh, the entire webinar is on there. We take you through really a lot of the best practices with fix and flips. I take you through a real case scenario that we just did in Central Texas. And I think it's good information if you're interested. Also a reminder, we've got the Wealth Builders Real Estate Conference Workshop that's coming up. Uh, you can check that out, learn more about it at wealthbuilders.org events. And we've got this amazing learning platform that Billy and Becky have put together called Wealth Builders University. You won't even believe the price is just $299 a year. And it includes a monthly live mastermind call where uh, us and other speakers and teachers are on experts in their fields. And you can ask personal uh, questions about, you know, your money, investments, real estate, and uh, you have access to, it is dozens of lessons and each lesson has courses, multiple courses in them. And it's just a phenomenal platform that is dedicated to helping you make sense of making money for making a difference. So thank you again, Frank and Mike, for being part of the podcast today. And thank all of you for joining us. We love and appreciate you. Have an awesome rest of the day.